The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books Podcast with me, Claire Armistead. And me, Shan Kane. This week, we talk to the novelist Glenn Patterson about identity and Ireland. Later in the show, we'll be asking Sam Jordison about the best books to read to lift your spirits if you're self-isolating and in need of a little joy. Glenn Patterson is a Northern Irish writer who made his debut in 1988 with Burning Your Own, a coming-of-age tale set at the start of Northern Ireland's troubles in 1969. It won a Betty Trask Award and the Rooney Prize for Irish Literature. He currently teaches creative writing at Queen's University, Belfast. His most recent novel, Where Are We Now?, focuses on Herbie, a bewildered divorcee trying to make a new life in a rapidly renewing Belfast where the ghosts of the past remain unquiet. When he came into the studio to talk to our colleague Lindsay Irving, Glenn began by reading a passage introducing us to Herbie. Somebody had stolen his identity. An elaborate, thoroughgoing fraud stretching back years, decades. The evidence had all been laid out on the table before him, staggering in its scope and audacity. Passports in two nationalities, staff cards, union cards, mortgage statements, loan applications, a marriage certificate, flawlessly executed. Photographs, lots and lots of photographs, starting on the steps of the wedding church with their sprinkling of confetti, running on then through reception and honeymoon, Paris by the looks of it, to holidays by the sea, Christmas trees, works dinners, charity discos, fun runs, hill walks, at least five identically posed with this character, leaning his arm on the roofs of new cars, Fiesta, Allegro, Renault 12, 21, Citroen C5, the receipts for which were in a separate envelope in a different box, along with the cooker receipts, the fridge receipts, the serial television and television recording device receipts, Betamax to Blu-ray. It would have taken a lifetime near to go through it in detail. And at the end of it all, he told his doctor, for despite all that evidence, he had a hunch this was still more a medical than a legal matter. He would have looked up and said, hand on heart, I have no idea who this person is, but it's not me. The doctor leaned back in her seat, fingers laced on her stomach. She was on the home straight now to retirement. She had wisdom to dispense. Don't take this the wrong way, Herbie, she said, but half the people in this country probably wish they had your problem. He needed his temples with thumb and ring finger. Some days it felt as though he was carrying a concrete block around in there. Some days an empty box. Do you think I need a prescription? Yes. Don't sit up late at night looking at old photos. Thank you for the reading. I hear that Herbie's changed in ways he has not yet fully woken up to uh which seems to be a pretty general condition uh for all time but it also seems uh uh, particularly piquant in northern ireland it it, you know given the other things that have been going on in the in the public realm um there have been uh let's say there have been some interesting changes uh and uh changes in definition or threats of changes or depending on which way you look at it, promises of changes of definition about what Northern Ireland is and where Northern Ireland is, where it sits in the relationships within these islands and where it relates to the rest of Europe. So that was something that was in my mind as well uh, as I started to write it. Um, And um, but but Herbie is somebody who I think all of us at various moments in our lives 
are propelled out of or gracefully allowed to step out of uh, some of the roles that we've maybe occupied unthinkingly for uh, for quite a number of years. Things that maybe defined us, parent, partner, spouse, employee, and all of those things have changed fairly in quite short order for for Herbie. He's um, he he has uh, yeah he's experienced rather a lot of change. He's not entirely unhappy with his lot. He's trying to to uh, get used to um, the the changes in his own life, but also the changes in in the city of Belfast, um, which is which is changing rapidly all around him. Um, and um, again, he's he's. Uh, trying to work out if he's still living in the same city without having moved away. Yes, the, the, the novel pays a lot of attention to the fact that everywhere you turn, it's a different kind of iteration of the city. And, the, the, you know, the Docklands have been rebuilt and there's the... Oh, God, you have to redo your Docklands. We realised everybody else had redone theirs. So, of course, <laughs> we, we had to do ours as well. Uh, I, we At the time that I was starting to write the novel, we were in... Um, a, peak hotel building um, phase in, in, in Belfast uh, in not so long ago. We, we had, I think, uh, maybe we had two or three hotels. We certainly didn't have that many. Uh, and now there have been, there's been such a growth uh, in hotel building. Um, and so, yeah, so all around him, he's, he's seeing this, this change. As indeed, I have to say, I would notice quite a lot of change. There's, again, um, I think, Probably a lot of people will have experienced this. There's a, a time in your life where you feel you're right across the city. There's not a bit of it that you don't know. And then there are other moments where you look and you see something in the far distance being built and you think maybe that's the that's the city I'm never going to live in. That's the city that's going to be after me. That's a sobering thought. But there's also at a more local level things are changing in a way that's common uh, or very familiar uh, in England as well, is that uh, the sort of post-late capitalist uh, structures of the post office is on the way out. The post office is on the way out. Well, the post office is moving uh, into a filling station. Uh, But yes, the the little uh, neighbourhood that he lives in with its uh, shops, uh, gradually they're all closing and charity shops and cafes are the, the only things that are opening and um, and there's an expanding church there are churches now that are self-sustaining communities that um, have their uh, preferred doctors uh, accountants estate agents even so uh, Herbie and some of his friends in this neighbourhood are kind of keeping a a watchful and wary eye on the on the creep. I think that's the right word I want to use there. The creep of this particular church. Well, it's a very new variety of Protestantism. Uh, I think probably Paisley was uh, was such a, a large figure, a larger than life figure, and uh, larger than all the other sects put together figure that uh, perhaps he obscured the reality of uh, of. Uh, Protestantism in uh, in Northern Ireland it's, it comes in, in a great many varieties, um, and uh, this uh, this new uh, relaxed version of of Protestantism um, is uh, yeah is is on the up. Yes, but the the sort of relaxation around the uh, the areas of sexuality, for absolutely, instance, that seems quite novel. Well, you know, I mean, a lot has changed uh, in, in recent times um, in in Northern Ireland. And I'm delighted to say that uh, thanks to uh, Brexit and in a, in a kind of a, 
a, a curious way uh, Brexit and the DUP's influence over the over the government uh, actually got us uh, equal marriage finally because uh, they annoyed everybody so much <laughs> in the in the Conservative Party and uh, and the and in the opposition that last summer to spite them I think um, we finally we finally had Westminster forcing through um, uh, legislation on on equal marriage which we, we we've been campaigning for for years there so it's delightful to see that yes and uh, another change is uh, the rising numbers of tourists we're a very we're a very popular tourist destination and uh, quite a lot of them are coming to uh, what used to be the the shipyard uh, uh, and is now Queen's Island, the shipyard, and is now the, the Titanic Quarter with the Titanic Visitor Centre. And uh, and we also have um, the Titanic Film Studios down there uh, where Game of Thrones has been uh, most famously has been filmed. And so a lot of that, uh, a lot of that uh, new influx of people are, are gravitating to the place where, where Herbie finds himself working part time as a freelance researcher. Um, in the records office. Yes. People uh, coming looking for their uh, for their ancestry. Yes, which, uh, as the novel shows, uh, people with that kind of, that sort of family history seems a rather benign strand of history, but uh, the novel goes on to reflect on the fact that it's, Things haven't changed that much. No, I mean people. People have um, a desire actually for. It used to be in the times past that you wanted your family tree to be quite neat and to fit into a, a frame, and you would cut off anything that uh, was awkward in the family tree. But now people want. Uh, they they want um, interesting and colourful families uh, and histories and um, so there are a lot of uh, people, particularly Americans in the novel, who are coming, uh, looking for their connections with, uh, with the troubled. Past the Bermuda Shorts Triangle, the Bermuda Shorts Triangle. I do. Yes, that's right. Um, uh, down around the the Titanic signature building, which I have to say, actually, it's a very nice part of the town. I do, I do quite like the part of town. But uh, yeah, there there are. Um, it, it is a bit of a, a trap for tourists, um, and and all of this is happening at the same time as uh, some of the things that uh, events of the more recent past haven't entirely. Uh, been put to rest there is still um, one of the things that tourists come for is to have photographs taken in front of some of our uh, wall murals uh, paramilitary wall murals and uh, in the part of Belfast that I live in in the east of the city um, some of those are still um, very aggressive uh, still in the the hooded gunmen and you would have people standing, busloads of people coming and uh, getting out and having their photographs taken, standing next to these. And uh, and yet these same organisations are um, are active. I mean, these aren't um, these aren't harking back to uh, a distant past. These are these are still um, you know in the in the UVF and the UDA and in various uh, forms of the IRA. They are still um, beating people up. They're still murdering people. Uh, so this is very much uh, it might be um, it might be a, a tourist attraction, but for uh, people who live there, this is uh, this is still something that's a real problem. And there's not much kind of glamorous excitement there uh, if you look closely enough. Um, and also, I mean, for the most part, uh, the, the novel sectarian madness seems a very long way away. But uh, it's set in East Belfast, and this is another thing that hasn't changed. It's still. Uh, the demographic is still very much divided in the city, isn't it? The city is still um, a divided place. I think one of the things about Belfast is that it probably, 
at w- at one and the same time, it is more divided, uh, just in simply in terms of the number of peace walls uh, uh, that we have. There are actually far more of them than there were back in 1998 when the Good Friday Agreement was signed. Uh, and yet it was always the case that um, it was uh, a more possible city, if I can call it that, than perhaps would have uh, been apparent on the surface. It was um, the east of the city is considered to be um, almost exclusively Protestant, Unionist, and it's certainly not. Um, so it's uh, it's changing. Things are things are always. Um, in in motion there as they are in all cities Um, and uh, it might take a little bit of a time before we actually see uh, what uh, the the next stage of uh, of Belfast's development is is going to be but there is there is change around the edges yes and as we've seen from reproductive rights uh, things can actually change very quickly when Uh, they absolutely that things can change and and curiously I I wrote a book um, between finishing this novel and it coming out. I wrote a, a non-fiction book called Backstop Land, which I began last May and came out at the end of October, 31st of October. It was the only thing that came out on the 31st of October. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I, was, I suggested to Head of Zeus, the publishers, that we should have a campaign that says, we're out, why aren't you? Um, <laughs> but, um, so I, but I wrote that book and it was partly um, a kind of uh, an overview of of Northern Ireland and and how the the Brexit debates and negotiations were affecting Northern Ireland, but it was also uh, a diary of the time that I was writing it. So it's a diary of um, last summer, and um, and you know the, it it did seem at one stage in the middle of say June of last year that we we didn't have the Stormont government having hadn't been sitting at that stage for two and a half years. Uh, we were still at that stage agitating for equal marriage abortion reform the only places the only place on the islands that hadn't had those so uh, it did seem at that stage as though uh, nothing was going to move and then very quickly within a, a very short period of time um, we've got Stormont back up and running we have equal marriage and uh, and we have the abortion reform coming as well so things can change um, very very quickly the one thing I caution against is uh, the tendency um, to to think that everything's fixed. That's it. It's all. It's all. It's all. It's all better. Uh, we don't have to think about it anymore. Um, and the the persistence of paramilitary organisations, uh, the blight on young lives of things like punishment attacks. Um, mm. which uh, all the paramilitary organisations indulge in and the victims are nearly always, as, in, as indeed is the case in Where Are We Now? One of the characters falls victim to this. They're nearly always uh, young males are the people who yeah. fall foul of them. Yes, and they linger around like the rather the malign seagulls. Yeah, yes, yes. Yeah, yes. yeah they around the, the story. Um, but it's this is a, a long way from being a book about the troubles but it's the the ghosts of that era are an insistent presence in um and have been throughout your career in in fiction i wonder do you ever resent that subject being more or less unavoidable i've never thought of the troubles as being a subject i think of i mean belfast is my city most of my novels are set in belfast it was was one that was set in hiroshima it was one that was set in Euro Disney. But apart from that, I have tended to set novels in Belfast, 
probably split equally between those set in the present of their writing and those that are sit, set in the recent past, uh, except for one that was set in the 1830s. Uh, that, that is my city, and it just it feels like the natural place for me to set fiction. And, uh, you know, I grew up reading fiction set in Chicago, New York, London, Manchester, St. Petersburg. I'd never been to any of those places, but I took it um, just on trust that the place that the, the the writers were writing about, the places that they were writing about, were real. Um, and uh, and I always thought that I wanted to write about Belfast in that way. I didn't want to have glossary of terms. I didn't want to have little maps at the beginning showing people where they were. I thought just come to the city through yeah, the pages of the book. And uh, so the, the the city that I um, have lived in most of my life and that I've set most of my fiction in is a city that has had for um, a period of a few decades. Uh, the main news story from it has uh, tended to be um, this conflict. I had a novel called Number Five, which was uh, the number of a, a house in a, in a housing development in Belfast. And I started it in the 1950s and it ran on to uh, the early 2000s when I published it in 2003. And my thought with that was that the house was actually older than the Troubles. So in the 1950s, that isn't the main news story. And by the time the novel ends, it's post Good Friday Agreement. And I wanted to do that to say precisely that the Troubles wasn't the only story. It was, uh, it was something that was uh, a part of the of life. Uh, anybody who lived there had to deal with, um, with the what that brought, the complications of um, the very simple thing, um, you know, of going out in the evening, trying to meet people was kind of occasionally very difficult. Um, you know, all those kind of complications, to say nothing of the enormities of, of the loss of life, just how you go about the ordinary business of living or maybe the extraordinary business of living, of falling in love and making a life. Uh, people manage that sort of moving around the great sort of political obstacles. I, oh, you know, my heroes are people of um, my parents' generation uh, who you know, decided to stay there. Uh, a lot of people uh, very reasonably left. Some people couldn't leave, but other people decided to invest their lives um, in in that city and in uh, at a time that was uh, very very difficult. Um, and I think you know there's a a lot of, a lot of people. Um, the, you know the city that it has become and is becoming owes a great debt to the people who just you know insisted on still going out to a dinner dance still going out for a drink on a Friday night, still going into town on a Saturday afternoon. I mean, those are all uh, real investments um, in the in a place that uh, I just think, um, you know, can't be underestimated. Yes. And but as Herbie, of course, is, and his daughter, the question of getting out is, is hovering Herbie's him. daughter Beth, um, one of the, 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 I suppose, the very beginning of the novel, uh, Herbie is just about reconciled to um, the end of his marriage. It's been over for a few years. He's moved into another house. He's living on his own. He's uh, lost his job, but it, things are just about settling down. And then he gets a text from uh, his daughter to say that she's uh, on her way back from England. And uh, it turns out she's coming home because she's bankrupt. 
so she's uh, coming back to stay with him for a little while. That turns into quite a long while. Um, and uh, so that's the the bulk of the of the novel is really the relationship between Herbie and his daughter or the other relationships that Herbie has while while Beth is back living with him. She couldn't get out fast enough when she was 18. Um, as soon as uh, as soon as she got her exam results, she was she was away and uh, hasn't really been back uh, in the decade since until this uh, this this bankruptcy. To finish, I can't resist asking about uh, the political future of a country any given country is always going to be preposterous but i can't resist asking you where where are you now? <laughs> where are we um where are we now um uh, well we're somewhere slightly different uh in early 2020 than we were in the autumn of 2019 just simply because of the change in the withdrawal agreement um, and the what people are referring to as the border in the Irish Sea. So instead of the backstop and the concern around a, a hard border between north and south, we now have this um, somewhat tricky thing to negotiate or even understand, uh, which is a, the potential for a customs uh, arrangement between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. I always think that whatever has been has not lasted. No political arrangement in the history of humankind has lasted for more than um, a, a few centuries. Um, and anything that has been has not lasted and anything that has been could be again. So, um, yeah, if you ask me in the short term what's going to happen, no idea. <laughs> uh, if you're asking me in the long term, um, yeah, the, the, the islands will drift together and they'll drift apart. Come back in five million years and yeah. me, see, see where we are then. That was Glenn Patterson. Where Are We Now? is published by Apollo. After the break, we'll be talking to Sam Jordison and getting his top books to read if you want to clear your mind of coronavirus. Welcome back to the Guardian Books podcast. Coronavirus is the headline of the day with reports coming in thick and fast from every corner of the world. So, what to do if you're self-isolating and have already binged on your favourite shows? Read a book, of course, and we have just the man to help you decide which to choose. On the line with us now is Sam Jordison, co-founder of Galley Beggar Press and the man behind The Guardian's reading group and tips, links and suggestions blog. Hi, Sam. You, you're coming to us from Norwich, which is not part of the London cluster. Is there a cluster of trouble around you or is it all very calm? Hi there. Well, I'm sure there probably is trouble on the way. It feels calm at the moment. Um, you know, of course, there's a worry it's the calm before the storm. And I'm not going very far from the house. I don't know what it's like in the city centre. Um, but things there's this strange feeling that the roads are quieter but there are more people walking around and I suppose the thing you, I noticed the most actually is everyone's looking slightly nervous and we're all trying to keep our distance from each other. Yeah and I, I mean I got I got the tube on the way here and uh, it was quite a strange seeing everyone trying to have a seat between. Normally you have to fight for seats and everyone was like refusing to sit down if there wasn't two seats there. Um, but Sam you, you we've got so we run the reading group on the the, the Guardian Books uh, website and um, it's uh, free for anyone to join. So if you're interested at all, if you're at home and you're bored um, and you want to join in um, a chat, we're reading uh, Make Room, Make Room by Harry Harrison, which has turned out to be a very timely book, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. It's been, it's been really timely. So 
the book is um, set in New York in 1999, and the, the general idea is that there's been huge overpopulation problems, there are food shortages, and it's about the, the dystopian, what was the future, because it was written in 1966. And it's been really, what can I say, it's been fascinating. In a way, I've been comparing and contrasting the problems we have in the real world right now and the, the problems in the book, um, which is slightly macabre in some ways, but also it's strangely uh, validating and, and gives you hope. You know, the people in the book, they can get through it. So so hopefully we can too is the one of the main things I've taken from it. So, so um, it raises two things. One is um, about dystopias. Do we actually want to read dystopias when we're living in through dystopian times? <laughs> or do we want to read for comfort? I think my feeling is a bit of both. I, I can't really give you a, I'm sorry to hedge my bets, but I, I feel like it's been quite cathartic. It's given me a different perspective on, on what's happening to us now. And there is one of the strange things I always feel about dystopian fiction is that it's quite escapist in a way because it presents a different reality so stepping into that has been quite immersive and diverting and enjoyable but there is also quite a big part of me that wants comforting books as well um, I've been reading Charles Dickens Ah oh, that's the nostalgia card which I was going to come to because this is obviously a classic of its sort and and I mean we, there is a sense in of, of that one wants to return to things that one has loved in the past yes. when one was possibly feeling happy and young and springy. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm reading Wolf Hall again at the moment just because of that exact reason. You're taking I know big, it's good. It's a big run-up. I, although I, I have to say, one of the books that I keep on wanting to go back to is John Wyndham's Day of the Triffids, which mm. is, uh, you know, which actually combines both nostalgia and and dystopia. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what, you mentioned... Um, Wolf Hall, mm. Sean, and that's a really big read, isn't mm. it? Do is this a time for big reads? Do you think? I think I think for some people it will be. I think some people will have a natural urge to want to use their time in a useful way if they can't say do the things they would normally do, um, and so some people will see this as an opportunity to tackle some of those. Uh, reading what you'd say maybe challenges um, and Yi Yunli actually is uh, doing a uh, the Chinese author she's doing a online book club at the moment uh, where they're reading Tolstoy together <laughs> oh I was going to say but it's the war and peace moment yeah, isn't it exactly. that everybody always talks about and never gets around yeah, to yeah so everyone uh, if, if you want to if you want to follow her on, on online on Twitter um, yeah she's she's reading it and a whole bunch of authors are taking part Garth Greenwell's taking part and stuff so it, it, that's kind of nice to see I think a, a few people are doing that but I also feel like some people are maybe just trying to use uh, this time to catch up on some reading and perhaps a way to do that is to ease into things that are comforting and maybe they have read before but it's reassuring to know that it's good and it may be, like he said before, will remind them of a, of a happier time. I think I might go back and read all of Austen. I haven't read Austen for probably about 10 years. Jane Austen? Yeah. Oh. And I was like, I really want to read Persuasion just because I know it's romantic and I kind <laughs> of just want to be cheered up. Um, so yeah, I, I think, I, I, but I, I think it's it's a good thing for everyone to remember that. I mean, there's all these hilarious things being shared. Going, oh, Shakespeare wrote King Lear during the plague. Like, why don't you use this time to be useful? And I think people should 
maybe not put too much pressure on themselves. Sam, what have the tips, links and suggestions community been coming up with? They're very lively, aren't they? I just went, I I took a brief look through last week's um, strand because this week's one has only just gone up and there were sort of like 1,500 suggestions. (laughs) If anybody feels the need for conversation, that is the place to head. Absolutely. What have they been suggesting? They've been suggesting all sorts, uh, as they always do. One thing that keeps popping up, actually, is a Journal of the Plague Year by Daniel Defoe, which um, seems, you know, the, the connections are pretty obvious. It's been it's been lovely for me to, to look through and, and check in on, you know, lots of people who I'm familiar with and I kind of I know their backgrounds from what they've been posting for a long time, but lots of new people coming along as well and sharing and being welcomed. And it does feel like a really good place to discuss books and be diverted but also people are talking about things that are worrying them they're telling us what it's like in their various parts of the world which is fascinating and um, it does feel like a really good support network at the moment what what should you do if your concentration span is suffering and that's something that i've i've felt i've felt very fidgety and i can't i find it just quite hard to focus on on something in a sustained way because I keep being dragged back to the Guardian Live blog with all, all the sort of latest announcements. I mean, do you think that do you think that actually there's there's a particular place for for example for short stories? I haven't personally been reading that many short stories, but I certainly know the feeling of looking on the live blog. In fact, that was one of the the funny things about reading Harry Harrison's Make Room Make Room. I'd be reading a few pages, look on the live blog and it would kind of all meld in my mind the various dystopian happenings. Um, I'm actually quite relaxed, though, about being diverted. This is one of the the lovely things about reading Charles Dickens again, and a book I'm quite familiar with. Is you know I can read a few pages, find myself drifting, and then come back to it. And I think that's okay. And I think maybe that's that's the way we'll have to read for a while. He did write in in instalments, didn't he? So in a way, he's he's exactly the right sort of writer to be to be reading even though it's long in in the totality of the novels do you know what that's that's really true and something i've been noticing i've got a nice penguin edition that actually tells you when the different installments uh when you get to the end of an installment there's a little note that lets you know and that gives you a, a real sense of achievement and you think ah, well you know dickens's readers will have to wait for a week now so that's okay i'm getting through things so what about you sean um well i mean i do love a lot of short story writers um uh, particularly George Saunders, who would probably be a very nice author to read now in that he uh, he does write very bleak stuff, actually, quite a lot of the time, but he also writes about uh, kindness a lot. And um, he's, he's, really introduced, he's really interested in the ideas of hu- in humanity and uh, the idea that perhaps at the heart of it, most of us are essentially good. Um, and that can be quite a nice... I find reading him quite a nice and warm experience a lot of the time. Um, but then there's also, I mean, um, you know, if we're, you know, talking about dystopia and how actually that can sometimes be quite bracing, uh, having uh, writers who are quite gloomy, like uh, Shirley Jackson, who I love, and I love her short stories, um, actually, like, thinking about them now, now I want to read those. <laughs> um, and Flannery O'Connor as well, you know. Um, I think it's just the the sense that something is contained. It's it, it's it's like what Sam was saying about uh, a sense of achievement when you finish something, uh, something like Flannery O'Connor and Shirley Jackson, you can have that uh, constantly because you can just finish a, an eight-page short story and then 
go back to worrying about the live blog. <laughs> <laughs> I've I've actually just read a, a really nice little Canadian short story collection called Half Sisters and Other Stories by a writer called Ryan Turner, mm. who I hadn't heard of. It's not available in the UK, but if you're lucky enough to live in Canada, it's out from Gasparo Press. And it's it's great because it spans from Soviet Russia to modern day Canada. Oh, wow. Really lovely, humane, gentle stories. Very, very perceptive. And the other one I've read, because I am into short stuff at the moment, um, it's all about Sarah by oh. this, this new French star, Pauline Delaboy-Allard. Um, is, is it very saucy? It's mad and headlong in its first half. And then the second half is all a sort of, is the reckoning with the mad headlongness, which is, <laughs> which is by then finished. <laughs> wow, okay. Um, and it's, I mean, you know, and it's, it's that, that um, it's, it's short and very, very intense. And I find very short, very intense things are working for me at the moment. Mm. I want to reread The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. And, um, and it struck me, it would be a fantastic thing to read with a young child, a sort of 10, 11 year old who's out of school. We're all going to have to be amusing kids in the next few months. And you've got a, a, an 11 year old daughter, haven't you, Sam? I have. And she's been off school for a week. I'm very lucky in that she still lets me read to her in the, in you know, do nighttime reading, essentially. And but we've gone on to on to kind of quite, you know, we're, we're starting to break into the classics. So we're actually reading Dracula at the moment, which is fantastic for all sorts of reasons. But one of them, of course, which I'm very aware of now, is that Dracula is actually all about disease and viruses being passed on. I mean, it wasn't expressed in exactly those ways, but of course, you know, vampires, you can think of them as a mat- metaphor for illness. You know, it's it's a way of, of understanding what's happening around us. Um, it's also, of course, just a brilliant diverting story and uh, as long as you don't take Dracula's side it has a I know we're heading towards a happy ending which is quite reassuring at the moment Um, and uh, another um, book um, a 19th century book that I remember reading with my daughter when she was 13 about 13 was Jane Eyre and it was just at the point of moving from from um, sort of kids literature to adult literature and and she at that time probably wasn't quite old enough do it by herself but what you know so we read the first half and then whoa couldn't <laughs> stop it <laughs> i mean that's 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 one of those things i think that um that 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 can be a really lovely way of bridging that gap between um children's literature and adult literature because most people will end up flitting between the two their whole lives but um there are certain classics and I, for me it was catcher in the rye that it's um accessible enough that it becomes it sort of gives you permission to then go hunt for those those books that you have perhaps always thought were more challenging than they perhaps are. Um, books that perhaps have reputations that precede them. So you think, oh, I can't do Dickens. And then you do try Dickens and you realise, oh, actually, no, this is wonderful. And that's why it has the reputation. So, Sam, like, what what are you reading at the moment apart from Dickens? And um, obviously going over Make Room, Make Room on the reading group. Are you going to – have you got any – books that you're you're eyeing up now to with with some spare time at home yeah well i've got i keep looking at the terry pratchett pile i recently reread night watch which of course was just wonderful and um it's got everything you want it's really diverting it reinforces your faith in humanity and i think one of terry pratchett's especially in the if you're familiar with the the night watch books which are books about um as the title explained, <laughs> uh, 
the the, the guards who who look after things at night in Ankh-Morkbok, his his fantasy city. There's this great character called Sam Vimes, who is the um, the head of the Night Watch. Who Terry Pratchett, he's such a good storyteller. He makes you fall completely in love with him. And Vimes's big philosophy is not to get everything right and not to be perfect, but just to do the least harm possible, which feels at the moment like a really useful motto. The least harm possible. <laughs> we'll try. Should we try? Yeah. That means not coming, not sitting too close to me. In the office. We got told off. We just got monumentally told off for sitting within three feet of each other. Thanks very much, Sam. Um, um, we'll let you get back to your um, to your gothic reading. Thank you very much. I, I really would recommend if if you are looking for. Um, maybe some guided reading or you want some recommendations um, to join uh, both the reading group on the website and also the tips, links and suggestions blog. Uh, All you have to do is have a Guardian comment account. Um, uh, We choose a new book on the first Tuesday of every month. Um, We are still going through Make Room, Make Room, uh, but uh, we will be doing a vote uh, for next month's book soon. Uh, So uh, do join in and also on tips, links and suggestions. Just uh, go and have a look at the comments and have a read at the conversations. It's all uh, wonderful and diverting at the moment, I think. And and it goes up on a Monday and you can see the threads developing through the week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're already on a thousand comments for this week. So I think everyone's kind of raring for, for some bookie conversation. And that's all for this week. Next week, we'll be returning to the 16th century with Toby Ferris, who will tell us about his pursuit of the Dutch master Peter Bruegel. If you have any thoughts about this week's episode, get in touch on Twitter at Guardian Books or on the podcast page. And you can always subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. But for now, from me, Claire Armistead. And me, Sean Kane. And our producer, Esther Pokujeni. Thanks for listening and goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.